Hi, I'm Ryan, the Nanite Composite Player. I'm Ben, the Grapple Harpoon Player. I'm Helen, the Manticore Player. And I'm Jared, the Unshackled Artificial AI GM. Together we are the Starting Equipment Podcast, and we are here to talk to you about one of our favorite games. We are finally doing a review of it. It is Lancer time, everybody. It is time for Mech Combat. Lancer is a modular tactical mech combat RPG. That's a lot of words. Let me explain it. You play one of the titular Lancers, an elite pilot who is licensed to operate mech frames produced by one of the premier weapons manufacturers in the galaxy. You might once have been a scruffy farm kid on a backworld who bought enough spare parts to build your own Iron Man in the caves power suit, but those humble days are well behind you. Lancers are the elite of the elite. Whether they put their skills to use as soldiers of fortune, high-end corporate wet work people, or just people trying to make their portion of the galaxy a safer place, have mech, will travel, will kick ass. That's what a Lancer is. So it's time to describe the room. What does a typical scene look like in Lancer? Ryan, hit me up. The enemy has grown desperate in their attempts to remain stable as your mech company pushes further into their territory. The pickup trucks zooming down the interstate towards you have installed anti-aircraft guns in the beds. Some suicidal gunners are manning them, and you can only imagine they are laughing as they go deaf from firing the improvised death machines your way. Ben, what's your scene? Hit me. Your chest-mounted grapple cannon scores a direct hit on the enemy mech. The harpoon is in deep, and as far as you can tell, there's no way they'll escape getting into the range of your nasty sword. Something slams into your mech as you revel in your success, but no way they could have hit you. When, when did the enemy's mech lose its arms? Wait, is that arm floating to your left, swinging a sword at the cockpit? Well, shit. Helen. Your crew has just finished a very lucrative job, and you've all decided to go lighten your bank accounts at a resort station that costs too much to ask silly questions. You got your heels up on the bar or enjoying your sugar syrup with a side of hard liquor when a weird buzz catches your attention. You read the system notice flashing across your HUD, and then again flashing across the bar top display, the marquee, every other screen and projector in the casino. It's your name, your face, your call sign, as well as the IDs of about two dozen other Lancers, all with your approximate whereabouts throughout the system. You don't know any of these people, but they're all identified as pilots of Horace Line mechs, just like you. License redistribution event, declares the scrolling red text. A timer appears and begins counting down from 200 hours. For a limited time only, claim your Horace class license and take to the stars. May the best pilots remain. Most of the wealthy patrons are looking around bewildered, but you can feel eyes on your throat. Might be time for your crew to make themselves scarce. Mmm, sugar water. <laughs> okay, let's wow. talk about the setting of Lancer. It's the only booze I will drink. Lancer is, at its heart, hopeful. It is at least 11,000 years in the future. We had just begun reaching out into the stars before civilization collapsed on Earth, leaving colonies suddenly alone in the vastness of space. We started over on Earth, rediscovered our history, and then fought to reclaim lost technology. Once again, we started reaching out to the stars, and we made contact with the cultures that were strewn throughout before the collapse. We were, at first, cruel in our attempts to reclaim what we felt was our birthright. 
Things have changed since then. Somewhere in our constant greed and strife, we became better. We became what we always should have been. We became the Union. Definitely not the Star Trek Federation. The Union, totally different thing. Okay, the Union has three laws that form the pillars of its belief system. All shall have their material needs fulfilled. No walls shall stand between worlds. No human shall stand in bondage through force, labor, or debt. The Union has the technology and capacity to bring these truths and goals to the galaxy. They have not yet managed to do so for everyone. The galaxy is awfully large, but every day another world no longer has to bear the horror of disease or famine. For Union, utopia is a verb. The Union has ended scarcity for all of the worlds under its sway. So, what does this lever do? Pull, wait, which lever? Yeah, that's right, because Lancer is essentially two games, mechanically speaking. The first is a very straightforward rules-light D20 plus or minus system where the target number is always 10 or above. That's called narrative play. The other is Mech Combat, which takes a sharp turn into tactical board game territory. Mech Combat is essentially no longer a tabletop RPG. It is a war game. It's a modern take on Battletech. In mech combat time, there you're still largely using a d20 for attacks. There's a boatload of additional mechanics to, to keep track of that depend on how you customize your mech's frame. Simple first. Narrative play is meant to contain anything that doesn't take place in a scenario where rigid increments of time and space matter to how things shake out. This is better than thinking of an inside the mech versus outside the mech thing, because there are still elements of narrative play that can take place inside a mech. You might even find yourself in a place where it makes sense to stay in narrative play. Sometimes a Lancer may violently expel a fuel rod from their mech's chest directly into a situation that is about to become deeply complicated by the sudden presence of that nuclear fuel rod. And the context is what determines whether that's best appropriate for narrative play or mech combat. So you can do combat outside of your mech. Like if your guy is wandering around a spaceport and needs to, you know, get in a shootout with a guard or something. But outside of mech combat, it follows the narrative rules by default and is therefore very fast, very rules light, and not tap. We'll start with your pilot sheet. You start at license level zero. You're a brand new Lancer, but a Lancer nonetheless. License level zero is training wheels. The book even says skip it if you're really familiar with the game. It is to start having fun and to learn the rules without having too many knobs and options. Because as you get up there in license level, your mechs can get a pretty darn complicated. So at license level zero, you are cleared to operate the GMS SP-1 Everest frame and have access to all of the general massive systems equipment. We'll get some more information what all that means here in a minute, but we're not going to go too deep onto the nitty gritty mechanics of each of the, the mechs and so forth. Talking about how to make your character, first you pick a background, which is exactly what it sounds like, a reflection of your character's concept and or where they came from. Truly, every option in the genres of science fiction and space western are available to you. If none of the 20 options in the book seem to fit your idea, make one up. You can't take this guy from me! Wow. Yeah, I went I there. Knew. We all know what we watched when we were thinking about what we were going to do for this game. 
Yeah. We all know. True. It was that. Yeah, it was Cowboy Bebop. It was a little bit of Battlestar. We know where we were. We know where we're. I was going to say, I don't know what the heck you were talking about. I'm all about Pacific Rim here. We're also watching that. Yes. This game is Pacific Rim and also every other sci-fi or space western show you've ever seen. But also Pacific Rim. That's yeah, what dude. we mean when we say there's narrative play and that combat. Your background is going to come up mechanically as a way for either you or the GM to modify your roles in narrative play. For instance, let's say you chose celebrity. Your beaming face is broadcast through half of the inhabited systems in the galaxy on blockbuster hollow vids before your sudden career change and you snap. Diva, 20 feet tall. Yeah. You or your GM could potentially invoke that background to distract club security by posing for an autograph while your teammates slip in the back offices. Invoking your background in that way would give you accuracy, which means that in addition to rolling the d20 like you always do, you would roll a d6 and add that to the result. Your target number is still 10. So your odds of accomplishing your goal go way up when you can manufacture a situation in which you have accuracy. But if your character were the one trying to sneak into the back offices, you or the GM could invoke that background to make the check difficult. Or in mechanical terms, to give you difficulty. And you guessed it. That means you roll a d6 in addition to d20, and then you subtract the roll of the d6. Fail that roll, and one of the security guards might intercept your character before you even get to the stairwell. The security officer is pretty sure they recognize you from somewhere, but maybe they're still trying to remember if it's in a hollow soap or a system-wide bounty alert. Could get you in some trouble. You know, perfectly normal situations like that. Yeah, at least when you're a space cowboy. Since we're talking about rolling checks, the next part of your pilot sheet is going to be their triggers. These are brief words or phrases that cover a niche of capability your character has. At creation, you'll pick or create four, each with a value of plus two. Some examples in the book are get somewhere quickly, apply fists to faces, or pull rank. If this doesn't sound like traditional skill checks from other games, you are correct. That's because you don't have to worry about specific skills. As we said earlier, your character is a top-of-the-line operative in whatever their chosen field might be. A skill check in this game is just you describing what you want to do to your GM, determining your bonuses or penalties, and then rolling the dice. Your triggers are more like specialties because you have that trigger when your character engages in an action that would benefit from the buff. And your target number is almost always going to be 10, which is another example of how the game weights mechanics in your character's favor. Even on an unmodified roll, they have a 50-50 chance of success. But there are still ways to up the stakes in a check. You can declare a challenge to be inherently risky, which means that even if you reach the target number of 10, you will suffer some version of the consequences of a roll unless you manage to meet or beat a 20. And if you want to up the ante even more, a heroic roll requires you to meet or beat a 20 to achieve any version of your goal. It's the one instance in which your target number is not going to be 10. And heroic roll is your character doing something that's a real, real reach. I mean, it's heroic. Yeah. You are at the climax of the TV show. You are doing something absolutely bonkers to save the day. Here's one of the best and most simple credos of the rules for this game. You will know what the consequences for failure are before you ever roll. Once you describe your goal to the GM, they tell you what happens if you fail. This gives you the opportunity to decide how much reinforcement you want for the check or if you need to find a different approach. If someone wants to assist with the check, you will still make the role as normal 
but with plus one level of accuracy. If you can also invoke a background in your favor, that can net you a second level of accuracy, which means you'll roll 2d6 and take the higher to add to your d20. But everyone who participates in the teamwork action will suffer the same consequences if your roll still fails. As long as the check wasn't risky to begin with, even if you fail, you have one more shot to push your luck. But this Hail Mary play comes with the added danger of making the check risky. And that's it. Those are the rules for narrative play. That's all you need to know about your pilot sheet. That's it. It took us three minutes to describe narrative play. What's left is your skills and talents as a mech pilot. There are four mech skills. They are hull, agility, systems, and engineering. These are the skills that represent your strengths as a pilot and that you take to whatever frame you happen to be using. You'll put either a plus two in one of these or you'll put plus one in two of these at creation. Much like your triggers, when you make a check in your mech that leans on one of these skills, you'll add the bonus to the roll. The second most fun thing to pick in the game are your three starting talents. Lancer does an excellent job of designing talents to be really specialized, useful, and most important importantly, to make your character feel like a badass. Every choice this game's rule system makes is designed to make you feel like an absolute thug from the get-go. Now, talents come in groups of three, which you purchase sequentially. You must purchase three rank one talents at start, but after that, you may purchase new rank one talents or upgrade an existing talent as you prefer. The talents are things like hold and lock, which give you accuracy on all melee targets you are grappling. And things like here, catch, which gives your mech an integrated mount that represents firing your superheated nuclear fuel rods at other mechs. Three guesses which one Helen was building for the few shot we played off podcast. Yes. Which brings us finally to the most fun thing you'll get to pick in the game, your mech frame. There are four different companies that make and license mechs in this universe, and each of them has a theme that goes across their whole line of mechs. And a fifth company that makes weapons only and one starter mech. General Massive Systems, the fifth company makes all the default everything nothing special here the weapons and mechs they make are all common all across the galaxy they are tough and pack a punch but lack any specialization or really a whole lot of flavor yeah they're boring i want to slide in here they do have a great sidebar which i recommend everyone read about the everest that goes into a little more detail about what it does bring mechanically to the table that's one of the points i wanted to make here they are the basic basic doesn't mean bad the general massive system assault rifle is a very good assault rifle it's just it's a good assault rifle in every situation if you want one that's better at long range pick something else. If you want something that's better against multiple targets, pick something else. But if you want a good general, this is the gun that I use to shoot many bullets at other mechs, GMS makes a great one. Yeah, most of the stuff that you'll pick up for your character specializes you, and there'll still be times where like, oh, I built my character to be a sniper. Well, we're going in a situation that's that's not going to come up. All right, well, I'll go back to my Everest for this mission. And I think, honestly, it's more of a matter of all of the mechs are cool, and so it's potentially easy to lose sight of the default equipment. But that's not to say that you won't and shouldn't go back to the default equipment at different points as you gain more elements in your licensor. But in the meantime, the IPS North Star, another one of the companies that you are eventually going to unlock equipment for, it started its life as a pair of shipping and transportation companies. Most of the mechs they make are converted or repurposed mining or shipping equipment. So they're very blocky and simple 
but incredibly strong. They are workhorses. They tend to be tanky and slow, but sometimes that's exactly what you need. And then there is the Smith Shimano Corpo. This company started its existence as an exploration company. Their mechs are highly specialized and incredibly fast, dangerous, and fragile. SSC makes glass cannons for every role. It's really great. This game is really good about making sure that every company has every type of mech. Like there are control mechs, there are long range mechs. There's even like close combat fighters that are glass cannons from SSC. Horus is a really interesting as a quote unquote corporation. It has a board and it makes money and it manufactures all of the mech frames that are listed for it. But no one, not even in the company really know where the designs come from and they are weird and seemingly handed out at random. There are rumors, many, many rumors that are unproven but are everywhere, that the entity actually behind Horace's mechs and handing them out is in fact a rogue, unshackled AI. Uh, you know, abrupt segue. <laughs> Harrison Armory actually started as a weapons manufacturer. They specialize in sturdy mechs with top-of-the-line weapons and none of them are secretly harboring on Shackled AIs. <laughs> a trade-off. You can imagine a little like TM after that statement. Your mech is not smarter than you. TM. The trade-off is that their mechs generate a lot of heat and have to mitigate that as best they can. Harrison Armory tends to be like the burst damage or burst defense, burst whatever it is that mech does. You're really, really good for a brief period of time and then you've got to take a couple turns off. That's Harrison Armory. So no matter what though, you'll start with the GMS SP1 Everest as a license level zero pilot. But every time you complete a mission, you'll gain another license level, narratively representing gaining a license from one of the various mech and arm manufacturers in the galaxy. Uh, you can apply that license to any other line of mechs, unlocking sequential ranks of the corresponding mechs capabilities. This isn't like levels in a lot of games. This isn't like levels in D&D where you have to go in a certain order. You can apply your new rank to the first license level of the IPS Lancaster, a support design, granting access to its cable winch system and its restock drone, or you could do it to any other mech you want. You can get that first license level right away. If you apply your next license to the second license level of the Lancaster, you unlock the Lancaster frame. When they say frame, they mean the mech itself, granting access to its unique mule harness and whitewash sealant spray. We promise it's more exciting than it sounds. <laughs> Yeah, when we get to actually talking about our favorite mechs, you'll believe us. We will sway you with their glory. To continue Jared's example, you could also apply your third license level to the Lancaster to unlock all of its capabilities and systems. Or you could hop on over to the Horus line of mechs and take the first level of the Manticore licenses. So what that means, once you've started spending some license levels, it means that you can now mix and match equipment gamed from the standard GMS systems, the unlocked levels of your Lancaster, and the unlocked level of your Manticore. You can mix and match as much as you want. And you have all of these things or access to all these things functionally in perpetuity. What you're licensed to operate, you're assumed to be able to recover in downtime, even if you lose it on a mission, barring plot related barriers that are between you, your table and the GM. Scarcity is artificial. So one of the things that is really interesting to point out and that I really like about this system is let's say you spend two license levels to unlock the frame of the Blackbeard, big sword using guy with a harpoon. 
But then that's you realize a mech, that, of course, that's a big, yes, big mech, not guys. Excellent example of the cool shit in this game is you can play a mech called the Blackbeard, which is a big mech that has a sword and an axe. Jared and Hunter, I want to spend points to unlock a guy named Blackbeard who has a harpoon and a sword. Would he be a beast? <sighs> God damn it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you unlock the Blackbeard and you play it for a couple missions and you realize that you don't actually like your Blackbeard. Guess what? The game doesn't punish you for trying things out and making cool new shit. You can trade in license levels for new license levels. If you don't like your Blackbeard, you can trade in those two license levels and spend them on something else you might like. You know what the corporation is not worried about? It's not worried about finding someone else who wants that license level to yeah. pilot the Blackbeard. They're not worried about that. They've built it. The Lancers will come. So there are so, so many options to make a character in this game. This game is just fun to sit and read the book while you try and figure out all the different synergies that you can put together. It is a crunchy game, but since you can retrain talents or swap out licenses if you don't like how things flow, you shouldn't feel worried about experimenting, about trying new things, and seeing what you can put together. So for instance, there are mechs like the Harrison Armory mechs that in one way or another tend to generate themselves a lot of heat. There are other bits of equipment and elements from other mechs in other classes, the Manticore comes to mind, that have different ways that they deal with heat. So if you wanted to try and balance something out where, well, I want to use this thing that tends to generate heat, I'm going to look at other elements of the system in order to give me a way to process that heat practically, then you can start putting together some really neat stuff. I think now is a good time to move on to our next segment, Critical Hits. Because the thing I want to talk about is what makes this game playable for people like me who aren't as great with the crunchy stuff. Uh, for those of you who are new to our podcast, the Critical Hits section are the things we love the most about this game. And sometimes we have to like reach a little bit to find things we like about game systems. It was automatic and fast for this one because I think we all love it. Uh, Sorry. Yes. Sorry to interrupt, Ben. No, no. We need to talk about CompCon. Hell yeah, we do. It is the free-to-use companion app for Lancer that, at least for me, and I think my fellow podcasters, ties this game together. It is certainly not perfect, but the developers should be super proud of their work in making the fun but somewhat overwhelming prospect of creating a new character and mech easy to do and understand. And honestly, if you want to just create a character and mech, you can do it in under five minutes. Easily. Yeah, that's like thinking about things. Do it on your computer. It's not optimized for your phone. It's not good. Which leads to my kind and gentle suggestion, which is charge for it and use that money for QA if if you don't want to make a profit off of it. One thing that I want to say about ComCon, uh, this is not my critical hit. I have another one later. But as a GM, you can create your entire mission every mission in CompCon and it will let you set up as many different battles and whatever and narrative sections as you want and it will just be in a big list so that you can easily reference it and so that all your crunchy enemy mech stuff is all in one easy to use place. I have never seen a tool in another game that makes it easier to be a first time GM than CompCon. They really want to help out your GMs and CompCon does it in an amazing way. My critical hit. This game 
does an amazing job of having a very crunchy system that doesn't get in its own way. There are so many options for making a character in your mech, but because most of the effects are very clearly stated, if X, then Y, or you gain this action, it doesn't become too convoluted. Yeah, so I love rules-light systems with all of my heart. It is my favorite way to tell stories. Give me the rules I need to run the game and nothing more. Like, let's stick to what your game is trying to do. However, combat never feels satisfying in rules-like games. Never, ever, ever. Lancer solved that problem by splitting narrative and combat into essentially two separate games. It is an absolutely beautiful, elegant solution, and I want to see it in a lot more games. Also, PS, again, to make life easier on our GMs, a shout out to NPCs without stats. So I am a big advocate of potentially a great truism of RPGs, which is the system and the setting are never going to be as important as the people that you play with and the fun that you have hanging out and telling stories together. That's the part we remember. And you run into these people who's like, oh, I love this game, I love this game, but I could never play it again because it never seems to live up. Well, it's because they have wonderful memories of the time they played a game way back when with their friends, but it was that game that was special. Not the mechanics, not the book, none of that. They may enjoy those things, but what was fun, truly fun, were the memories that they made. And so I like a lot of what's in Lancer, but really what I like is the opportunity that Lancer presents. I am excited for the stories that I can tell in the game because it presents a different setting and a different set of mechanics in order to do something that I don't get to do a lot. It's a new world from the perspective of the, just the other games in my library. It's something different. It's something neat. It's something special. I've got a whole bunch of World of Darkness games. I love them all. I've got a whole bunch of various fantasy hack and slash OSR kinds of things that I've played in the past. This one, blending together the war game and the space western essentially kind of genre is something that I don't have really in my library otherwise. And one of the reasons that people are always encouraged as they're getting into tabletop RPGs, move out of fantasy and see what else is out there. This is why. You're going to have a great time making new stories with cool people. And this is just an example of a game giving you the opportunity to do that. Okay, it's time for our special extra super bonus round critical hit full barrage. It's a mech game. It's a mech game. So we have to talk about our favorite mechs. I want to be really clear before I let anybody open their mouth about a single mech. One of the things I really love about this is of the, I am not actually counting here, but 30 or so mechs the game provides for you to pick and choose from. And there's more that you can buy. In that 30, 40 mechs, there's only like two that I don't think are super cool. And I know that's personal, but it's one of the few games where I look at every option and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool too. But we have decided that we are going to limit ourselves so that we're not just talking about mechs for three hours to one mech each. And I think it is fair to bring up at this point that when we were all asked to boil it down to one mech each, three of us independently and without communicating all picked Horus mechs. Because they're weird and we like weird. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we love all of the mechs equally. (laughs) Ben, go ahead. 
The Horus Hydra. I like it because it detaches its arms. You'll notice a theme in my earlier descriptions of mech combat because I just love the nanite swarm idea that it can disarticulate and then stab you um, while looking you in the eye from across the cityscape. It's just sweet. It's just and a it, sweet and neck. And it can like with a... reform its arms into different weapons and stuff. It's it's a nanite swarm of the cockpit, man. Yeah, I, I just love that they turned the entire mech combat thing on its head. And that is the Horus Hydra. I love the Horus Baylor. It's a mech composed entirely of nanites. And its whole gimmick is that it has a damage aura and can make little pockets of damaging terrain as it just disassembles things near it so it can repair itself. I love the idea of pulling things close to me and grappling them as they just slowly corrode and evaporate into nothingness as my mech is. I am heard in the house of stillness. I am clad in the magic of Ra. Know this, blasphemer. What exists is within my grasp. Burn, thou fiend, before the fire of the eye of Ra. Go with thy face averted, thou omission of chaos. The hidden ones have overthrown thy words. Thy face is turned backward. Thy head is divided in two at the sides. Thy skull is ripped from thy spine. Taste, thou death. I feed upon my own fire. I am Ra who protects myself. Nothing can harm me. It is important to know that Helen did not lose her mind there. That is the actual fluff quote for her favorite mech. And you can tell why, because it's awesome. The Horus Manticore has elements of that in the fluff descriptions for each of the mech frame different ranks. Yeah, it's so cool. I was flipping through the book, just kind of seeing a bunch of numbers on the page. And I think it might have been Ryan who pointed it out to me. He was like, yeah, there's this one mech where they do some quotes and stuff. And I saw that. I'm like, oh, the mech that I will play. <laughs> Great. I think that I had the hardest time picking a favorite. Like literally when my fellow podcasters was like, you're going to only talk about one. I was like, what's wrong with you? So there's a lot more I want to talk about, but I am going to talk about the only non-Horus mech our group has chosen. The Smith Shimano Corporation Duskwing. It's an incredibly small mech. It's barely taller than a regular person. The Duskwing is an incredibly fragile, incredibly fast support control mech that is equally good at being a sniper or making it so that your enemies can't go in certain areas of the map. Every time you either make a move or make an extended move, which you should do often as the Duskwing because uh, fragile exclamation point. You leave behind a holographic copy of your mech to distract enemies. These copies don't go away until they are shot. So it is very easy to make two and sometimes even three of these per turn, just littering the battlefield with copies of your mech so they don't know which is the real one to shoot. You can also pick out specific enemies that you think are dangerous and turn yourself invisible to them. Who the hell doesn't want to be an invisible sniper that makes holograms and flies? Because I know I do. This is because to be real, if you get shot by the Duskwing, even with like a nerf gun, kablowy! I'm pretty sure it is the most fragile frame in the game. If not, it is the second most. It is not the most fragile. Asterisk. (laughs) (laughs) The most fragile frame is a Horus mech with time manipulation that has five hit points and no armor. 
but uh, once per turn, it can rewind to the start of the turn. It's like, I, that, that didn't hit me. That never happened. So don't hit it twice. Whereas the Duskwing is like, I'm really fragile and really fast, but if you hit me, I explode. <laughs> okay, now let's talk about, and we're stretching here. It's time to move on to our botches section. This is the stuff we think the system really screwed up. Not even really screwed up. Well, that, that's what it's supposed to be. But like I said, we have to reach here because I don't think any of us really think. There's nothing that upset us so much that we're willing to call it a botch. But yeah. we do want to point out the things we don't There's some rough edges yeah and i know my rough edge was license level zero it to me it just needs more max i would say maybe three total but right now license level zero is understandably a long tutorial but i feel that it's overly long and doesn't have enough customization or specialization. A caveat, I think. So in one of the supplements, they did actually introduce an alternate frame for the Everest to make it a little bit different. And the book like is pretty clear. If you've played this before, you don't need to start a license level zero. But for the first time, it's probably a good idea. If nothing else, it's super helpful just to have a bunch of people who are playing with more or less the same mechanics so that you're all roughly the same sheet to ask for help. It is clearly, I would say it's even more basic than that. It's if this is your first tabletop RPG, you should start at license level zero. I'm going to go with if this is your first war game. Yeah, that's like if you're if you're playing tabletops, maybe that's but like when we started playing Lancer, I played Mage Knight Middle School, but it's been a minute. So it was helpful to be able to look at the same set of mechanics as everybody else. I have two small rough edges to complain about, but they're both minor complaints. You know how we sang the praises of CompCon, the companion app, a few minutes ago? Well, the bad thing is that the reason they made it is because CompCon is necessary. You either have to play in person and it'll still be slow, or you have to have CompCon. As a GM, I couldn't imagine even playing in person without without CompCon. You have to have internet access to play the game, basically. Uh, Not great. The other small complaint is out of mech combat, which takes place in the narrative time frame. I really wish that they had included rules for combat outside your mech also as part of the tactical thing. I wish that was a thing you could do, but it's not. And so, I mean, I think this might be my favorite game. I give this game like a 9.8 out of 10. If there was out of mech combat in tactical, in war game form, it would be a 10 out of 10. So the only problem I can really think of with this game is it's so niche. You might have trouble finding enough people who want to actually play with you. I both acknowledge that you're probably right, but have such a hard time because of who I am believing that mech are niche like who doesn't want to be a giant mech and stomp stuff right, I, I don't get it i have a serious question for you right now jared yes i want you to look over your right shoulder what's there three shelves of transformers i understand i have a type what i'll say is i think you will have no problem finding people who want to play firefly or cowboy bebop with you. Do I think that those same people will also definitely want to switch gears and play Warhammer Kill Team? And the answer might definitely be yes. However, comma, it might be no. And I think that's really what makes it niche. And I understand that you're right. I'm describing Jared. How many Jareds are there out there? (laughs) This Uh is Jared's game. I want to play Firefly and then play Kill Team and then play Star yes. Trek and then play Kill Team again. Correct. That's all I yes. want to do. This is Jared. Um, yes. It's Jared. 
Okay. You should feel free to take it slow. There are a lot of mechanics that get added. We didn't go into all of them. We've been talking about how narrative play is very, very freeform, and then we gave you a very surface level description of mech combat. We didn't go into statuses. We didn't discuss heat in any greater detail. We didn't discuss any of the complex elements that are more normal in, honestly, D&D and the tabletop-based war games that spawned D&D once upon a time. We didn't go into all of that. CompCon being necessary sounds like, is that really? When you're just listening to the podcast, you will understand when you go through the book and start really looking at it. It gets real meaty real fast. Take your time. All of the meat is in the mech combat. Narrative play is super simple. The mech combat is super wargamey. Sure. There's over 200 weapons and systems to customize your mech with. Yes. And you can mix and match. It can get wild. It can. Take it slow. Use the tools that are available to you and be prepared to have fun. All right, it's time for us each to pick our story hooks. If you're new to our podcast, each and every one of us are going to give a campaign plot character hook that is unique to this world or plays really great in this world that we are excited about. Ryan, set us off. A heavily fortified authoritarian government controls a dozen worlds rimward of the core. They're too built up for a naval invasion. So who do you think will be hired to go in and stir up trouble? Bang. Three out of four podcasters agree. Horace is awesome. <laughs> uh, let's be clear. Four out of four podcasters agree. One of the four just also likes other things. What is it? Is it a who? A they? An it? Let's find out. Okay. One of the backgrounds that they list for a character immediately shot out for me. You are a clone or their pitch is you are a clone. That technology exists, you know, oh my God, this person's a great warrior, a great leader. Let's make a clone and hopefully, you know, it'll be a great soldier. The character that I want to play so badly, I want to be somebody who 50 years ago was a crack pilot, a hero and everything who became one of those people they decided to clone and who was injured and knocked out in some way and in a coma, whatever, whatever you want to do and is now back. And there are clones of me everywhere. And people just look at you like you're one of the clones from Star Wars. Like, you know, you are just number 3000, whatever. But my character is actually the dude. Nice. I wants it. I needs it. Let me play. So remember in some increment of time, was it like two years ago at this point when sea shanties were a thing again on the internet? Was that two years ago? I don't know. Yeah. It was a year ago. Oh, God. I don't time. know. Time. Time is violence. Anyway. Well, so what is a sea shanty? A sea shanty is an easy to remember, rhythmic, repetitive, catchy tune. It was intended to coordinate work shared by a group. You easily divide it up into fourths, eighths, sixteenths in order to coordinate pulling in nets, pulling on lines, anything that you would need to do as a group sailing a ship. I'm really excited to see how this relates to mecha. <laughs> I'm getting there. So when we think about 
space fantasy stuff and we talk about the navy but we refer to spaceships as a navy well what physical manual coordinated labor are you doing on a spaceship robots are doing most of it you know where you need to coordinate physical action if the power goes out in your mech and you have to do a manual override and now you have two arms and two legs presumably and you need to get them moving in a stride so you can move because your autopilot is off well so what if these academies of lancers and the train mech pilots well the school's fight song or whatever bullshit those are the new shanties they're designed in such a way that they are easily broken up so that every student who goes through the program has to practice manually piloting a mech without the assistive guidance so that they can actually walk themselves off the battlefield if they need to in their frame. And they know that the fourth is supposed to be this limb movement. The eighth is supposed to be this limb movement. And they are able to hum that in their heads to trudge out with the lights off in order to, you know, move. Sea shanties on spaceships, no. Sea shanties in mechs, yes. That is so nerdy that I absolutely hate that I think that is an awesome story hook. You know that it's an awesome story hook, and it would only be better if it was the kind of mech that had multiple people piloting it, because then you have desperate battlefield combat situation. There are like four people in this massive frame, and they're all in charge of a different piece. Running lights inside are flashing red. They can hear armaments flying overhead, and they just start madly humming and singing because they are scared out of their goddamn minds. But they know on this beat, the legs go. On this beat, the arms go. And somehow we are getting out of this muck and out of this mud, and we are getting home. That shit's good. Take my angry upvote. <laughs> I, I mean, as long as we get to meet the one commander who had to run a mech alone and then burned for three days afterwards and rescued get your the small... nonsense Pacific. Okay, moving on. It is time for to, to, I'm I'm calling it right there. It is time to do our one in five. This is where we describe a game that we also like that is smaller that we don't have time or desire to do a full review of, and we describe it in five minutes or less. Ryan, what game are we discussing today? Today we're discussing Never Going Home. It's a party-focused role-playing game by Wet Ink Games. It is set in the horror-haunted trenches during the First World War. In this setting, death thins the veil between worlds, and for the first time, there has been so much concentrated death for so long in one place, the veil has actually been torn asunder. The things from the other side have begun slipping secrets into the mind of the living to lead them down the path of damnation. In this game, you play soldiers in the trenches of World War I, the Great War. Your prospects of survival were already slim, but now that the world has gone mad and so have your superior officers, your chances are even slimmer. They have begun doing secret rituals, sending men on missions for esoteric magic purposes. You have no idea what's going on, but you know it's way worse than you were expecting when you got here. Never Going Home uses the plus one proprietary system. The plus one system uses d6s. You roll a number of dice equal to your training and the appropriate skill. Fives and sixes are successes, and your story 
storyteller will tell you how many you need to pass. What makes the system unique is how attributes work. Every skill is connected to an attribute directly. Whenever you make a skill check, you can manipulate the roll a number of times based on your current rank in the appropriate attribute. You can buy dice, increase the results of a single die, re-roll dice, or even make a skill check you wouldn't normally be able to make. Notice how he said current rank? Manipulating rolls doesn't decrease your attribute. I want to make that very clear. But taking damage does. Physical, psychological, or spiritual damage. The more damage you take, the less control you have over your dice rolls. If you play this game, your characters will die or go mad. It's a horror game based off of World War I. It is not a happy, fun time, frolic in the park game. So making a new character for the meat grinder of No Man's Land is very quick and easy. When you make a character, you are dealt a handful of playing cards. Depending on the suit, these cards represent different facets about your character. They could be things they know, things they hope for, things they're attached to, or maybe something about themselves they take pride in. Your starting and helps you personalize who your character is. War and magic take those things away from you. To make a journey, you have to play a card and give up a part of yourself. To grow and change, you have to spend sets of cards at the end of a mission. You become better, but only through loss. And magic. There is magic. The effects are called whispers. They are learned from the voices in the back of your head. To use them, you have to give of yourself. You have to play a card and lose that little bit of who you are. It's an incredible little bit of Ludo narrative. And it's creepy. Yeah. So I gotta be honest. I love this setting. I really, really love it. I love it so much. I hate how little of it there is. Wet Ink Games goes into detail about the different fronts in the war and how it's impacting different countries and how they're reacting to all the supernatural stuff happening. But I want more. I want a game set outside or after the war where everyone is trying to pick up the pieces and figure out what is happening. I want the game implied by this setting. If death wears a hole in reality and leads to sorcerers, I want to stumble across the journal of a teenager from the back of Antietam. I want would-be sorcerers pawing through the wreckage of the greatest rebellions and battles in human history. Like, why are we smallballing this? If we're gonna do it, let's do it. I also don't love the experience system. It's extremely flavorful. You can cash in pairs and sets of the cards at the end of the game to increase different skills and attributes, but it physically hurts me to spend my character's potential without advancing them. But still. Yeah. It's a really incredible game. The art's super great. Very evocative. I recommend it just to read it, if nothing else. Is it available only directly through Wet Ink, or can you get it on DriveThruRPG? You can get it on DriveThruRPG. Ooh. Well, I'm Ryan, the Nanite Composite Player. I'm Ben, the Grapple Harpoon Player. I'm Helen, the Manticore Player. And I'm Jared, the Unshackled AIGM. I am Horace. And together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. Please join us next week. Thank you.